Hello, J Crew. It's me again, Liel, your favorite irritable Israeli. No, don't touch that dial. There is absolutely nothing wrong with your podcast delivery system because this week we decided to give you a little something, something extra, a real bonus and a real treat that I am sure you are going to love. You know, sometime last year, my dear friends Adam Bello and David Chazoni got in touch with me and asked me if I would like to participate in an anthology that they were putting together called Jewish Priorities. I thought the idea was really charming. Find a bunch of really, really, really smart Jewish writers and thinkers and policymakers and me, and then ask all these people, hey, what do you think is the most urgent Jewish priority, the one thing that all of us need to just stop and pay attention to and do right away. It was always kind of a neat idea. But then came October 7th, and Jewish priorities just changed and became way more urgent, and the discussions we were having became much more pressing and concrete. And so we did the one thing the Jews know how to do best. We got together in a big room with lots of bagels and coffee and cream cheese and had a day-long discussion at the Weizmann Museum of Jewish American History in Philadelphia. And look, if you were there, you know how amazing it was. But if you weren't, don't worry, because we recorded the whole thing. And today, we'd love to give you the very first installment of this podcast that you could easily find just by following the links in the show notes. This conversation is a panel called, Can We Even Sit on the Panel Together?, what a Jewish way to introduce a panel. It was moderated by myself and the great Stephanie Butnick, and it featured Rabbi Shlomo Elkin, Jody Radorn, and Rabbi David Wolpe. The conversation is about, well, can we still have real conversation about Israel, about Palestinians, about peace, about Hamas, about politics, about anything and everything that truly matters. So here we are in the first installment of a new limited-run series called Jewish Priorities. I really hope you like it, and if you do, I really hope you check out the rest. A few months ago, we here at Unorthodox were asked to be part of an important conference at the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History. The idea was to celebrate a new book called Jewish Priorities by inviting a bunch of really smart Jews to tell us what we should focus on moving forward. What should our Jewish priorities be? But then October 7th happened, and it seemed like our priorities, really our entire world, completely changed, which only made the conference more urgent. So a while back, we gathered at the beautiful Weizmann Museum in Philadelphia, and we did what Jews do best, especially when times are tough. We talked. We talked about Israel and about Gaza, about Jewish storytelling and Jewish philanthropy, about the environment and religion and everything else that matters right now. The conversations weren't always easy. Sometimes, hey, we're Jews, we disagreed. But the conversations were always provocative and interesting, and we're happy to share them here with you. If you like what you hear, you should check out Jewish Priorities, edited by David Hazoni. And you should also visit the Weizmann Museum in Philly and their truly amazing collection. But now, on to the conversations. Yeah, I think the most pressing matter, the most urgent matter, is engaging young people and creating a cross-generational dialogue that young people are engaging with, with older folks, not only as teachers, but 
that there's there's a give and take in, in every direction. And that Judaism is not a burden, but that Judaism is, I don't want to use the word fun, that there's an excitement and a passion and a high level of thought that comes with it. We focus so much on externals and anti-Semitism that we forget that Jewish self-awareness, self-knowledge, education are what ultimately sustains the Jews, not just fighting people who hate us. This is Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th. And these are some of the voices you'll hear in this panel called, Can We Even Sit on a Panel Together? Panelists include Rabbi Shlomo Elkin, Jody Radoran, and Rabbi David Wolpe, and was moderated by me, Stephanie Butnick, and my unorthodox co-host, Liel Leibovitz. This discussion focused on the charge rhetoric we're seeing within the Jewish community during the war in Israel. I assume that as we approach this conversation, a lot of us approach it, as all of us always do, with preconceived notions that we are rooted firmly in convictions of left and right, that we belong to orthodox synagogues or conservative synagogues or reconstructionist synagogue or reform synagogues, that we come at the world from a particular historical viewpoint. One of the terrible but immensely hopeful things that happened on October 7th is that all these preconceived notions have shattered. We were always looking forward to this year conference. We always believed it was important. But on Saturday, October 7th, it became essential. Because unless we question everything that we thought we knew and everything that we thought we believe, our chances at survival are not very high. So the conversations that you would hear here for the next several hours uh, are going to be pointed and sometimes pointy. The questions that will be asked uh, will sometimes be provocative. The discussions that will ensue among people on stage uh, will sometimes be heated. We will always strive to keep things very civilized. We would always strive to keep the conversation focused on ideas, and we will always, always strive to keep the conversation pointed forward towards something constructive and hopeful that we could all leave here taking. But I ask you, as we welcome our first set of panelists to the stage, to try and put every, um, every emotion, every set of uh, ideas, everything that you thought you are very firmly attached to, aside for just one moment, for just six or seven hours, uh, and join us in this conversation. Stephanie, do you want to introduce our panelists? Yes, we have an amazing day of programming for you today, and we are starting with an amazing panel called Can We Even Sit on a Panel Together? Um, so we are diving right in. I'm going to introduce our three panelists, and then I'm going to invite them to come up. Uh, Shlomo Elkin is the rabbi and co-director of Chabad at Oberlin College and serves as a Jewish chaplain in prisons in the state of Ohio. David Wolpe is Rabbi Emeritus of Sinai Temple, visiting scholar at Harvard Divinity School, and the author most recently of David, The Divided Heart. Jody Radoran is editor-in-chief of The Forward. Before coming to The Forward in 2019, she spent 21 years as a reporter and editor at the New York Times, including a stint as the Jerusalem bureau chief. I'd like to welcome our three wonderful panelists up to the stage. Come on up. 
Rabbi Wolpe, I want to start with you because your essay in this wonderful book, Jewish Priorities, is it's called Respect Your Opponent, and it's all about learning to argue better. Could you explain to us the two different types of arguments, of disagreements that you run through in your book and, and how they are relevant again in these past few weeks of, of what we've seen uh, in, the, in the broader rhetoric in this country? Thank you. Um, again, thank you, hello, thank you. Okay, uh, first of all, it's the, wonderful to be back in my hometown. Um, I know some of you were congregants of my father's, and so uh, it's wonderful to see you. Um, yeah, I'm going to begin in my favorite way, which is actually disagreeing with Liel, um, one of my top five, <laughs> because I actually think that all those divisions exist, and the fact that we had a moment of unity has nothing to do with the idea that one person will only daven with a mechitza and the other person will only daven in an egalitarian, and nothing is gonna change that. We know from history that a common enemy creates unity. We saw it after 9-11. If tomorrow aliens came, all of Earth would be united, but after the aliens left, Russia and the Ukraine still wouldn't like each other. So I don't want us to over-exaggerate the unity that comes about from this. Instead, unity is exactly, Stephanie, what you said, which is believing that your opponent is a person, your opponent now, is a person with good intentions who sees the world differently than you do and trying to understand and empathize, not agree or necessarily even coexist in the same small area. I'll give you just one example of this. Um, I was very friendly, as many of you probably were, with Rabbi Sachs. I wrote a long article for the Jewish Review of Books about his work. I went and spoke at the uh, Yortzeit conference at Bar Ilan about his life, but he would not step into my synagogue. And we had many conversations about that. And I profoundly disagreed, and I didn't like the idea that he wouldn't, not even on a panel ever. But I had, to, I had to just agree to disagree with him while still thinking that he was a remarkable figure in Jewish life. And so that's what I'm asking for. I'm asking for people to be able to understand, empathize, and listen without demonizing the other and still being able to profoundly disagree. It gives me no pleasure, um, maybe a little bit of yeah, pleasure. Yeah, a little bit, come uh, on. To, to, to come at you knowing you know, the, the fullness uh, and the goodness of your heart. Uh, but as you say these words, and as you wrote this truly beautiful essay, everyone, by the way, you should really read this entire book, it's extraordinarily great, um, about the sort of possibility of, of real discussion, real disagreement, real kind of conversation. About a mile and a half up the road uh, at, at, a, at a certain university that shall not be mentioned, uh, we had just this week people walking around chanting, we want Jewish genocide. Now, my question for you is, Jody, you seem like you do not believe that happened. The time with it is, I mean, I listened, to the, I listened to the video that was, circulating on Instagram that was labeled, we want Jewish genocide. My, ne my nephew who graduated from Penn a year and a half ago sent it to me and I listened to it and it says, we charge Jews with genocide. And that is offensive and really problematic, 
but it's not We Want Jewish Genocide. I listened to it multiple times. Okay. And I think that we should, I mean, people are lying about us and about what we say, and we should not lie about what other people say. I have a question about that in, in just a moment, but um, I, I want to return Rabbi Wolpe to the hot seat, if, if you don't mind, for a second, uh, and, and ask, uh, when you hear this heated rhetoric, um, do you still believe that discussion is possible or merited? So, I would say, it I mean, it depends where you're drawing the boundary. With a Hamas terrorist, I'm not going to say, oh, put, put down, come on, let's talk, okay? There are limits. But, for example, when I go back to Harvard, I have already let students know if they want to come to my office, whatever side they represent and talk to me, I want to listen to them. Because I think it is a much better thing with a 20-year-old who carries a Palestinian flag to engage them in conversation than it is to say, you're out of bounds. That's it. I'm never talking to you. I have nothing to say to you. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to reason with you. I mean, I don't know about you, but I really would not want to be held to account for everything I said when I was 20 years old. Really. But it wasn't on social media. And I said stupid things at the University of Pennsylvania, which was my alma mater, and did stupid things at the University of Pennsylvania and elsewhere, but I never put it on TikTok, thank God. And so I would say, of course there are boundaries, but my boundaries are much larger than others. And part of the reason they are is you don't have that luxury if you're a synagogue rabbi. You have to say to your member who violently disagrees with you, maybe even screams at you at a board meeting in ways you don't like, let's talk. And it is infinitely more effective in creating goodwill than get the hell out of my synagogue. Rabbi Wolpe, The Young Years is totally a television show I would watch, by the way. <laughs> I was like, that's a pan, that, that one's happening upstairs later on. Right, yeah, I was We had your friends from Penn here to talk about. <laughs> But I don't know, so I always, I will err on the side of dialogue. Are there limits? Of course there are limits. But I don't think we push ourselves nearly far enough to talk to people who disagree with us. And by the way, just as long as he's sitting here, I think Chabad is a beautiful example of this, right? Chabad talks to people whose worldview they completely disagree with. And guess what? It often works. I did want to ask you something because um, th this thing happened that I've been thinking about a lot. I was um, streaming Yom Kippur services, no shame. Um, I'm a streamer. I was watching Central Synagogue, uh, which is a huge reform synagogue, um, reform temple in um, New York City. And one of the sermons was about Chabad. And it was sort of about, it was drawing this contrast between apocalyptic messianism and redemptive messianism within Judaism. It, it like went sort of a way I wasn't expecting. And basically he, there really was this like us versus them mentality that I, I felt like I was hearing. And I, I was so 
thrown by it that I went to the, tra- I don't even know if you know what I'm talking about, but I went back to the transcript a bunch of times and I was like, what, what is this? And so I guess I want to ask you, we're on this panel of, it's called how, you know, can we even be on a panel? And, you know, I know the Lubavitcher Rebbe always said, that the, what is it, there are no denominations, all Jews, we're all just Jews. But I, I want to ask you, and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, what do you do when someone doesn't really want you to be on their panel, so to speak, metaphorically speaking? What do you, what do you say to that? Sure. Um, well, for, first things first, in terms of just frame, framing it, um, I think, I think back to one of the foundational texts of, of Chabad philosophy, and it talks about all, all the Jewish people being like various limbs of the body, right? So, of course, the, the mind cares about what the left, what's happening with the left toe, but also at times they're in tension with each other. The left toe has its own function, as does the mind and the heart and, and every other limb. So we have to be indelibly concerned with every part of the body, every part of the Jewish people. So in that sense, there's no distinction, right? Um, and I think that's where the motivation that I mean, won't be mentioned of sitting, I mean, if I, only, if I only had people that thought like me around my Shabbos table, well, my wife wouldn't be there for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> amongst anybody else uh, or nobody else, I should say. Um, and how does it feel when people don't want you at the table? It's happened. Um, I just mentioned my wife. There was a, there was a, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's not what I meant. <laughs> um, there was a, a panel discussion at, at Oberlin College around um, Jewish feminism. And my wife actually called up the organizer and asked if she could be on the panel. And was told, you're not a feminist which took my wife by surprise, albeit maybe certain different definitions of around what feminism is or should be or could be or so on and so forth. And it was interesting because Jewish was able to be interpreted in any way that any panelist wanted it to be, but feminism had a very specific definition. So what did we do? She wasn't invited on the panel. She went, she, she sat, she listened. And then when it came to Q&A, her hand was the first one up. You know, and always with a smile, always with kindness. People do have boundaries, and we have to respect that also. There are times when it's not appropriate to be on a panel together. It's t- appropriate to respect, again, within limits, right? You know, it's appropriate to respect people's various uh, viewpoints and the, ta- the table that they want to set. Uh, and there's a way to engage. And when there's relationships uh, built, and people care about each other, then these divisions, these philosophies become a little bit less or a lot less important and we can engage together as an entirety of a Jewish community. Um, we will get back to that in a bit and, and complicate that and, and push back. But Jody, since, since you, um, you actually did something great just now uh, that that inspired me to ask this question that I was thinking about reading the forward. Um, you, you corrected this notion, and I thank you for it. Um, and I agree that particularly in times of war and in times where you know, spirit, spirits are very heated, getting the facts just right uh, is profoundly important. It's a, it's a tenet uh, of, of journalism. Um, but, but I want to understand kind of editorial 
sensibilities and, and, and how you think about this conflict. So on October 11th, which is four days into the war, um, and after the Israeli government has already officially said that some of the Hamas terrorists um, indeed raped some of the, of the Israeli victims, uh, the forward ran a 2,000 word report that called this allegation into question uh, and kind of took um, umbrage with the notion that this was now perceived wisdom. Um, walk me through this editorial decision. Well, I disagree with the characterization of what the article said. Um, the article was published the day after President Biden's first speech. Um, and in President Biden's speech, he referred to the rape of that rape was among the atrocities committed by Hamas, which was something that had been circulating around social media and had been, um, mostly on social media, had been excited by many celebrities and columnists, both on social media and in the mainstream media. And that Netanyahu had mentioned in a speech the day before. And, uh, or the, the day of, actually, the same day, I think. And we um, were, like, like other people, were looking for, you know, documentation of it. And we asked the IDF, and they said, we don't yet have any evidence confirming it. And we asked the White House, how did this get in Biden's speech? Like, where is this from? And they said that he, Netanyahu had told them about it in a phone call. And, I mean, this was pretty early in the war. It was, you know, two years after a much smaller Israel-Gaza conflagration in which we saw the particular, um, I'm trying to think of what the right word is, uh, fog is only the beginning, but the particular sort of horror of the manipulative misinformation, disinformation, rumor mongering, et cetera, on social media. Um, we were sort of in the midst of that and we thought this was an interesting case study in like how stories go viral and how does something get into the president's speech when before the IDF has confirmed it or find proof of it. It never really occurred to me editing that story that there wasn't rape that happened in this um, attack. I mean, it seemed fairly likely. It seemed more than likely. You know, just last night, um, the chief IDF spokesman confirmed it in his statement in, on national TV. We've seen over the last week Zaka volunteers and other people who have um, been dealing with forensic uh, aut autopsies of the bodies or with dealing with the bodies for burial, finding, sharing evidence of it. And, you know, we've, we've written that story as well. But it yeah, seemed like a really interesting case study of, like, exactly how information travels today travels to our kids on their phones, what they see. And I'm sure you, like me, are dealing with what your teenagers or college students are telling you about what happened in the war that they're seeing on their phones, how it travels into mainstream media. Um, we've now seen a whole nother set of this, a whole nother example of this with the hospital explosion in Gaza at the, um, when was that, on last Tuesday? Um, and how it travels into politician speeches and how those politicians and other people choose which facts or pieces of information they highlight, they elevate, and they argue about. So for me, it was not a story saying, ever suggesting that there might not have been rape or that we knew anything about that there wasn't rape. That was not the, the value proposition of the story at all. It was simply, how did Biden get to say this in his speech before the IDF had confirmation I, I of totally it? understand that. I, I know somebody has, wants to jump in, but I, I, just, I just want to clarify, because again, this is a question, we're of Tablet Magazine, we, we have this thought processes all the time, and it's always interesting 
um, to, to ask this question. When you begin with something that you're fairly certain is true, indeed happened, these rapes occurred, uh, and use that as an example, four days into a very massive war, to report a story, the greater context of which, as you just said, is the notion that during the fog of war, a lot of misinformation gets handled. Is there not a moment in which you said, look, there, there are just other priorities. There are just other things that I want to do. In instead of putting it out there in a way that may leave some well-meaning readers thinking, okay, well, they're calling into question the, the veracity of this particular so it just, case. It's like, I mean, we, I take a yes and philosophy to how this, I mean, the other stories that we published on, I don't know about exactly that day, but I mean, we were at the same time breaking the story of what happened at Stanford with the TA who called out the Jews in the class and called them colonizers and got suspended for it. We were at the same time, I think the day before we'd published my editorial about everything I knew about Israel and Gaza was wrong. Um, we were publishing um, within day. I mean, I, I, I could, I, we've published, I think as of Friday, we'd published 236 items on this. So by Wednesday, October 11th, it was probably more like 50, but you know, on that actual day, I was still in needed San a drink by, by that Wednesday. <laughs> what? You still needed a drink by that Wednesday. I definitely was not drinking, but I was, I mean, I actually was, you know, I was in San Francisco doing a series of public events. I was, you know, editing it in my hotel room. And we did, I, I think I had just that morning also interviewed Michael Oren about the speech and published an article about what, my, why Michael Oren explained, walked us through exactly what, about what Biden said was so historic and remarkable about his support of Israel. And it was really, really revealing. And I think that was actually our top story that day. So, it's not a like, we did this instead of doing a bunch of other things. We did this in addition to doing a bunch of other things. And that's how a good news organization works. Can I take this in a slightly different direction for one second? I know I'm not the moderator, but... This is the most Jewish conference but already. Exactly. I love it. We call this collaborative <laughs> right. overlapping. That's it's it. not interrupting. The, well, you know, Joseph Epstein always says, Jews don't listen, they wait. So, <laughs> um, barely. Before, right, barely. Before the war broke out, the key issue was, I had a congregation that was really divided between very enthusiastic Trump supporters and very not enthusiastic Trump, not supporters. They were enthusiastic um, and yes, not supporters. Enthusiastic <laughs> detractors and enthusiastic supporters. And the things that the American Jewish community used to say about each other depending on where they were on the political spectrum, the rhetoric that was used was violent about each other. Now, we have shifted. Now we're not using that rhetoric, at least not for the moment. We'll get back to it, believe me. Now we're using the rhetoric about the students who are supporting Palestine. What I, my larger point is, try not to use the rhetoric, except in really the most, I mean, for a Hamas terrorist, God bless you, use all the rhetoric you want. What I'm saying is we have something in us that immediately wants an opposition that we can demonize, and if we don't have A, we're gonna go for B, and, and it's unhealthy for the Jewish soul. That's my point. We're doing the Jewish thing here. No, right. I mean, Rabbi Wolpe wrote, wrote his essay about argument. Mine is about asking questions. They are, they are, they could have been the same 
they're they're the same, making the same point from two different perspectives. Oh, they're very different. Very different. <laughs> no, we're, we're in violent agreement about the way the conversation should unfold. But I also think it's super important to come at things from a position of curiosity. Why is this that way? Why do you think that? Can you explain to me with an openness to actually hearing something new and learning something? And I think, I mean, Liel, I really appreciated the way you introduced this to say we had all these fault lines before, and I think you said, you know, everything everything we thought before we have to sort of let go of because the world is so new. But I do think that there are a lot of new fault lines emerging. Um, and there are new, people are saying like, if this person says this thing, they are outside the tent. They are not part of this conversation. If this person does this thing, they are clearly outside the tent. And and it's just, it's, it's really hard in this moment to avoid that kind of characterization of in and out. I care about you. I don't care about you. I, I, I respect you. I don't respect you. I mean, and, and Rabbi Shulman, I just met you. I don't want to, but I, one of the things when we were at breakfast earlier, because Rabbi Shlomo is on a college campus, which has been such a, I don't know, hot, I mean, I was thinking of, I mean, they're ablaze and they're such difficult places to be. So the first thing I wanted to know was to hear what was happening at Oberlin. And the first thing you said was, I think you said the administration did the right thing, or did good or whatever. And and I'm, I, I didn't say it at the breakfast table, but it's like, I want to know what the administration said, not that you've characterized it as right or wrong or good or bad. And I want to know about the complexity of what each of the players are saying and doing. And and I know, again, I'm not trying to criticize you for we'll saying that. A, we'll have a breakaway but during the, lunch. The, this, <laughs> but I, I feel well, we're like do this right here in a bit. No, yeah. there is a lot of feeling of, did they do the, is, were they for me or against me? Did they do the right thing? And it's like, I want to just continue to urge us to come to this like horrible moment that is so difficult on college campuses and elsewhere and say, um, well, what did they say? What did they mean? Why did they say it? Who are they? And ask those questions and try to come with a, a real position of curiosity for what, what the answer might be. moment does seem to be different, right? Um, and Jody, you, as the Jerusalem bureau chief for the Times, had one of the most charged, you know, complicated jobs. And now you're, of course, running a Jewish publication during this incredibly challenging times. Our two rabbis are on college campuses now. So I really would love to talk to the, to hear from the three of you about what feels different. Is it the social media? Is it just the visceral us versus them within our own communities? What feels different about this moment? And how can we bridge those differences that we find ourselves facing? On how can campuses. We, uh, yeah, particularly. On, particularly on campuses, but part, you know, sort of in, in your experiences, how do we get everyone on the panel together at least? Sure, I could jump in. Yes, please. Um, You're the worst interrupter on this panel. I, well, <laughs> I was told to behave. <laughs> um, By whom? By your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> um, There'd be a couple things that I, I, I would say around what, what does it feel like on, on campus. And the first is actually uh, an invitation. I think 
I think this room is a very impressive and beautiful room, but, and I would love to see people under 30 here engaging in these conversations. We got a few. Yeah. Think we got two. We have two. Two live ones. Yeah. And, and hearing, hearing from all of the various panelists here, not just this panel, but throughout the whole day, and engaging, engaging with these things around you know, existential thought of what does it mean to be a Jewish person today, because they will be the Jewish people tomorrow. And that's really, really important of, of engaging them. And on their terms, I mean, maybe, maybe a book, maybe, maybe David, we have to launch a TikTok channel uh, for, uh, for this book, but, or, or, or something but to engage, to engage with young, young people. And I think that leads to um, how it feels different. Um, you know, we have an old adage that, that often gets repeated, you know, don't confuse me with the facts, I've already made up my mind, um, which might sum up the college experience in many ways. And I think that that comes um, at the cost of educators especially at private universities, hesitant to educate because they're worried about losing a customer uh, today. I think it comes at the cost of a misdirected empowerment of young people that has also forgotten to teach how to craft one in, oneself into a student. Um, again, a, a, an old Hasidic adage is to turn one, make oneself into a vessel which means we have to turn ourselves into a, a, a receptacle to learn. And then once one has filled up, or is continuously being filled up with all kinds of things, then they're able, we are able to give out. Um, I think that the college experience today is about edifying people's beliefs when they come into college already as 18 year olds. And I was speaking with somebody else earlier, I am not a proponent of young and dumb. I don't think college people are young and dumb at all. I think they have autonomy, I think they have intellect, I think they can be very impressive. But the adults in the room have sometimes forgotten to be educators. And what feels different is we're constantly turning to the student, we in the co biggest collective sense, constantly turning to the student for what's acceptable, what's not gonna cancel us, so on and so forth, as opposed to being bold enough, brave enough, smart enough to step into the weeds and really have difficult conversations and educate. I think that's n number one. I could go on much longer, but uh, I inv invite the uh, disruption. I, I completely agree with everything you said. Uh, that's no fun. But, yeah, but. <laughs> That's okay, I want to add. Um, <laughs> but you forgot, no. Uh, the part of the reason that young people don't listen to us is because we are the first generation in history where young people have essential life skills that older people don't. And that gives a certain intellectual confidence. Look, when my computer doesn't work, I ask my daughter and she comes over and goes, and that's it, and it's fixed. And when they live in a world that we don't live in, and they have skills that we don't have, when we tell them we know what's best, it sounds hollow. And that allied with the anti-Zionist progressive left ideology 
included, by the way, as I was talking earlier, it's partly a function of immigration of people from the Middle East who carry a certain anti-Semitic slash anti-Zionist ideology, many of them, coming together on college campuses with a progressive left ideology. And the question is, what do you do about that? And the organized Jewish community has largely said, what you do about that is you yell at them that they're bad and wrong. And crazily, that doesn't seem to be working. I don't know why. I mean, I don't know why a hundred columns from persuasive pens, and they're very, some of them are very, very good, and I don't have to retail all the names to you. All of us feel good, and we all send them to each other. And yet, for some crazy reason, even though you and I and everybody on the panel reads all these columns, the campus is the same. And, and of course, the answer is because, in part, they're young. In part, I think they've been indoctrinated in an ideology that I find both mistaken and pernicious, but also because we don't engage them in actual conversation. And it's very hard to change someone's mind by saying, you're wrong, just like it's hard to get somebody to calm down by saying, calm down. Instead, you have to say, why do you think this? Let's talk about this. And that is a long and difficult process. It's not easy. And nobody wants to do it. And therefore, we don't do it. Instead, we get frustrated and say, you're wrong. I wish that would work. But it doesn't. And neither does, by the way, Unfortunately, it may work to set up different universities, but just saying we're going to withdraw our money from the university until these kids change their minds also doesn't change their minds. Rather, it reinforces their sense that big, powerful forces oppose them and gives them a certain confidence that they're making waves because people don't want to hear the truth that they're speaking. So I really, th and, and I will just close by this. I believe in the next week or two, you will hear good stuff starting to come out of Harvard, and I hope long-term you'll hear lots of good stuff coming out of Harvard. I can't talk about it yet, but soon. Um, but this is a long process, and it will require the characteristics that older people say they have, which is patience and wisdom. That's not always the characteristic we do have, but we say we do, so maybe we should try it more. Joe, do you want to add to this briefly? Because I, I want to ask one last question and open it up for Q&A. Well, just quickly, I mean, I agree with, I'm not gonna add to the campus piece, but you asked very clearly what is different about this moment. And so I'll just add a couple of things that I think are really different. First of all, we should start with what is different about this moment is that Hamas breached the fence and committed an unprecedented, completely unanticipated assaults on Israelis, 1,400 dead, 210 kidnapped, 112, I guess, um, many atrocities, and massive intelligence failures, and Israelis like opening question, openly questioning response. So that's the first thing that's different and radically different from the landscape that we were all thought we were talking about. Um, and then the second thing that in a di I think the, the kids you guys are talking about, like their parents, I also want to talk a little bit about them and what they're experiencing. And I think that there's, you know, there's a crisis in the far Jewish left in the sort of borderline between the anti-Zionist left and the radically pro-Palestinian, pro-peace Jewish left. There's a real crisis happening there. And there is also a real crisis happening among the liberal Zionist kind of mainstream of American Jewish thought. American Jews, um, where people are really feeling isolated and questioning their allies. 
and their alliances. And uh, we've published a number of wrenching pieces about this that um, really lay it out. And it's also, it's all over my phone. It's like my friends are, they don't know who exactly they can trust. You talk about how they feel. I live in the Republic of Montclair, the People's Republic of Montclair, where, um, you know, um, and all the people, you know, the lawn, there's sort of a required lawn sign with these five principles, and people are now wondering, like, will there be a free Palestine lawn sign next to mine? Will there be a Israel is committing genocide lawn sign next to my house? And so I think people are feeling um, in this country uh, isolated and alone um, in a way that that is completely new to them. So uh, we really do want to leave some, uh, some time for questions and answers. So we want to ask one more question, uh, and it's a rapid-ish, fire-ish type of one for, for all of you. Uh, and it's obviously a two-parter, because this is a Jewish event. Um, so the first question is, I want you to start uh, by reflecting, and, and Jody, I appreciated the piece that you wrote, uh, which everyone should go and read. I believe that the headline was, everything I thought I knew about Israel and Gaza was wrong. So I, I want to start inspired by that piece, by asking you to share if there's something in the last couple of, of weeks that you thought, that made you sort of wake up and said, well, I got this completely wrong, because every good process of teshuva begins with you know, acknowledging what it is that, that we, how it is that we sinned. Uh, and then maybe leave us with one, one thing that you think we, uh, to make panels like this uh, fruitful, one thing that you think we could do as a sort of urgent priority, leave here and do this. And uh, Jody, we'll start with you. Um, so, I, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing that I uh, got wrong was, um, I, you know, I, I did not think the fence was breachable. And, and there's some extensions to that. I thought that, um, I mean, I am deeply concerned about Israel's ability to survive as a Jewish and democratic state without resolving the conflict. And I did not think that there was this kind of physical threat possible from Palestinians in Gaza or in the West Bank. So um, the recalculation of how to deal with this different kind of existential, potentially existential threat or specific, I mean, deadly threat um, that we thought Israel had basically quashed while being able to preserve its long-term ability to survive as a Jewish and democratic state in this neighborhood is um, a new kind of quandary, I think. Um, the second part is, again, just one thing we can what, think what about. What do you kind of want to, you know, sort of take? So, for example, I'll, 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 I'll provoke even further. So when you see these lawn signs, the hate has no home here, signs over, is there a part of you, for example, that says, you know what, I'm sorry, I was a good ally to you, and you did not come forth for me. Yeah. I'm out of this game. Right. So... Uh, I think I'm not going to say that. I might say sure, the, sure, something like that, that's similar to the opposite of that. I mean, I guess what I really... So, in the People's Republic of Montclair, there are a number of Facebook groups, as you can imagine, and there were a number of discussions... You don't do WhatsApps, you do Facebook? <laughs> Very old in, school. They're still in Facebook in my, in, in my demographic. Anyway, um, and there were a number of conversations around this, and I think pe there was an anonymous post on one of them that was like basically articulating the isolation I described, and there were 400 comments on it. And then in this other group, there was um, 
variety of, of conversations that I think the moderator ultimately felt was a little toxic. They ended up pinning on the top of that group um, a place, places you can give money to Israel, places you can give money to Gaza, two different posts. And then they, and then um, a bunch, me and a bunch of my friends got invitations to join a new Facebook group called the Montclair Schmooze, which was for Jews to talk about this. And I'm sure that's necessary in this moment, but I found it rather depressing. Um, so I guess in terms of the idea that we needed, our, we needed to take the conversation into a side room because we couldn't have the conversation in the main room. Um, and, maybe, and I think that's fine if it's in this morning period, it's in this difficult moment. But I guess I would hope that among the people around you who are saying or doing something that you find to be outside the tent, to be so confusing and offensive to you that you can't imagine, if you could pick one of them and one of those comments and try to engage and say, can you explain to me like how you got there? And can, you, can we talk about how come I can't handle that or that doesn't work for me or that seems really wrong to me? Um, in the coming weeks. I think that that will be really important when we look back at this um, from the pr perspective of history. So since I got the same thing wrong that Jody did, um, <clears throat> I'm gonna say, first of all, I, I've been doing these videos of like a minute or two of chizuk, of strengthening and of comfort and of talking to the Jewish community and of talking about our love for Israel and so on for the last couple of weeks. And they, been sent around many, 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 many thousands of times, which is really wonderful. And I just want to tell you the one I did last night that's going to be this morning or tomorrow. So last night I did a wedding. And I took a night flight here um, at David's insistence. Uh, but I'm not going to brag about that because some of you came from Israel. So, but I would, I, I had intended to. At the wedding, the couple said to me before the wedding, we, it's our simcha but we don't want it to go unmentioned what's going on in Israel. So you always say, if I forget Jerusalem, I forget my right hand. So right before he broke the glass, I said, how beautiful that their love is not only for each other, but embraces all of Israel because they wanted this, even at the moment of their greatest joy, they wanted this catastrophe mentioned. And one of the things that I think we can do is to share with each other the pain that we all feel. And it doesn't have to be oppositional. It just has to be like, this is really a time to love Jews because we're all in pain and it's exactly, you know, we're all part of the same body, broadly speaking. And for a moment here to, to circle back and agree with Liel where I disagree with him, it is a moment to forget the divisions and not worry whether you were right or left or up or down, but just to say to the Jewish people, I put my arms around you and I love you and God knows we've been through an enormous amount together and we have a common destiny and a common history and we should take care of each other. What did I get wrong? What did I get right? Um, and I, I don't mean this, uh, I hope it doesn't come across the wrong way. I feel like in some ways at Oberlin and on campuses in general, especially at Oberlin, I feel like this war has been going on for a long time in a really serious way. I also have a, an odd luxury. 
I have my finger in a lot of different communities. Leo, maybe you can relate to this in certain ways. I'm, my wife's Israeli. I keep mentioning her. She should have been here. She's smarter than I am anyways. But uh, um, my wife's Israeli. Um, all of her brothers have been called up basically for reserve duty right now. My WhatsApp groups are filled with Israelis, with, with um, you know, then I have other WhatsApp groups of Hasidic Jews all over the world, Chabad rabbis all over the world, and then I have social media feeds filled with current college students and alumni spanning the past decade and a half. So I really see so much. So the only thing that I could get wrong would be that to think that I have answers. If I had answers, I wouldn't be the rabbi in Oberlin. I can guarantee you that. I'd have some other, some other position somewhere else. Um, so I, I don't know to say what I got wrong exactly, but, but other than you know, that it's simple, that, that it could be simple. It's, there's, there's a lot of layers, and people come from all different kinds of backgrounds and perspectives and educations, and there has to be, there has to be a way to bring those things together to bring us to a better place. That's what I would say on that. Say again your second part, Leo. Sorry. Just one, leave us with one thing that we could take away. One thing we have to take away is, I think it's, it's unquestionable that Jews have to be Jewish. Jews have to be very proud in their Judaism. We can't be a, uh, an organization, a movement, a people of statements. We have to be a people of action. We have to get out. We have to do mitzvahs. We have to help each other. The thing that has inspired me the most is seeing reports, videos, TikToks, whatever, of Jews of all different types and stripes and streams and beliefs singing together, dancing together. There was an amazing video of a flight attendant on an El Al flight bringing Israelis back to Israel, wrapped in an Israeli flag, just singing Ani Mamin and other, other you know, classic Israeli army uh, rallying cries. Um, and it's hard not to be emotional, and it has to be more than that. We all have to, us doing mitzvahs, us lighting Shabbos candles, us putting on tefillin, us giving tzedakah in all of the places that need tzedakah, is helping the Jews in the, in the land of Israel right now. Amazing. Thank you so much for being Thank on you. our panel, for starting this day off. We're going to get some announcements. We have an amazing day ahead of us, and we're excited to keep the conversations going. This has been Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th, a podcast produced by the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia, in conjunction with Unorthodox and Tablet Studios. If you like the show, you should check out the book Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People. The panels were moderated by me, Stephanie Butnick, along with my Unorthodox co-host, Liel Leibovitz. The podcast was edited by Quinn Waller. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.